Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we trust you, and we know that your word will do what you send it to do. It will accomplish that for which you want, for that for which you sent it, and it will accomplish what you want it to accomplish. It will do your work because it is you. And so we trust you and believe that your word will sink into our hearts and minds, transform who we are and how we think, to translate into behavior that honors you. We want to live lives that glorify you, not just for our own joy, but for the sake of the world that needs to know you. So I pray that this morning your word would create that in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing that I like to do, I don't do it as much anymore, but I do like to do is fix phones. Uh, I just, years ago I had a phone, it cracked, it's the last phone I ever had that cracked, I haven't had a phone crack since, but when it cracked, I couldn't use it very well, and I was very frustrated, I'm like, there's got to be a way to fix this, so I looked into it, watched some YouTube videos, went online, found out you can order screens for iPhones, and they're not that expensive, all you have to do is order it, shows up, and fix it. Well, I fixed mine, it worked wonderfully. It, and then I told the other people, like, oh, yeah, I fixed my own phone. And they're like, can you fix mine? And I was like, sure. And the next person, can you fix mine? All of a sudden, so when I lived in Montana, I was literally fixing, like, six to eight phones every week and charging people, you know, for the product just to, to order the piece. And I wasn't charging anybody any extra money for labor. I was like, this is going to be, like, a ministry. They just have to pay for it, and I'll fix it. Well, it got to the point where I was doing it so much that it became like a second job, right? And I was like, I either gotta like start charging people like 20 bucks to fix the phone or just stop doing it. And I, there was a time when I realized I don't wanna do this anymore. I'd fixed this lady's phone. I had ordered the part, the part came, I replaced the screen, the cracked screen, put a new one in, and that screen didn't work. And I was like, oh boy. So I tell her, hey, it didn't work. I have to order a new one. I'll return the one I got. It's not going to cost you anything different. It's just going to be another few days at least. Order the new one. New one comes in. I replace it, put the new one in. It works. I'm like, woo! I told her, I'm almost done with your phone. It'll just be a few more minutes. She says, I'm on my way over. She's walking over to, or she's uh, driving over to her house. So there's one little piece of information I have to insert here that'll help you understand. Uh, by our front door, in, in our house in Montana, by our front door was tile. Okay, so that's important. Just hold on to that for a second. So she pulls up. I'm literally like putting in the last screw of the screen. It's locked in. I'm like, woohoo! And I drop this phone into a little bubble wrap pocket that the screen came in. And so I drop the phone in and then I walk to the front door and she's walking to the front door. She's got a brand new phone. I've got it in my hand. I see her coming. I'm happily walking to the front door. I put my hand down and the phone slides right out of the pocket and hits the tile floor as she rings the doorbell. And then I pick it up off the ground. I open the door. I go, it broke. <laughs> she's like, Okay, I'll just take it. Thanks. And she just took it, left, and never called me again. <laughs> Isn't that like... Think about what I was doing, really, as, a as, as like a kind of a side gig there. I was restoring phones, right? But isn't it just like us that when God restores us and we're in his hand, he's like, what do we, we're like, you know what? I think I'd rather jump out and land on the tile floor and break. We do that. We don't want to break. We don't want to leave his hands, but we're prone to. And so that happens to us. God restores us. He makes us new. And then we're like, I want to leave. Now here's the blessing. Is that when God restores us and we want to jump out of his hands, we can't. We can't do it because he holds us. And that is, the, that is really the heart of reconciliation, that God reconciles us to a right relationship with him. He restores us to new. And even though we want to leave, we can't. Even if we try to, we can't. 
because he holds us. And that is the beauty and the power of his reconciliation to, to restore us from what is a broken relationship to a perfect relationship. This reconciliation is permanent for us. And there are three implications. There's really more, but these are three main implications, very, very important truths that come from his reconciliation. And they are three things. Number one, people get saved. And we'll talk about this as we explore this verse. The product of reconciliation is salvation. Number two, you get joy. And number three, we all, those who are reconciled, get unity. And we're going to talk about what that really looks like, what that means practically in your life as we explore this verse. So I'm going to show you what reconciliation is, how it works, and then we'll see how that creates salvation, joy, and unity to those who are reconciled. And not just to those who are reconciled, but to those who are not reconciled in Christ, who are not believers, but the people that we hope will become believers, to the world who needs reconciliation. So we're in Colossians 1.20, and Paul writes, and through him, that's Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So obviously the most important word in this text is reconcile. Reconciliation means to restore to a right relationship. Now the problem with this idea of reconciliation, meaning to restore to a right relationship, is that we never had a right relationship with God. When we reconcile with our friends after we have a falling out, we are restoring that relationship back to what it was. Real relationship with your friend was good, something happened, it ruined that relationship or it's damaging or hurting that relationship, and then you restore it, you reconcile that relationship, you reconcile with your friend, and that relationship goes back to what it was. And if it's done right, it should even get better than it was. Because broken bones heal stronger. But before our relationship with Jesus, there was never a point in our lives when we were in a right relationship with God because we were conceived into a sinful nature that, according to Romans 3, was not righteous, not good, did not seek God, was worthless, had no peace with God, and no fear of God. Or as Ephesians 2.3 says it, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So if before Jesus we were children of wrath, then to what are we or were we reconciled? Because there's no right relationship to restore back to. It is not that God is restoring us to a previous relationship status we had with him. What God is doing is he's restoring his creation to its previous perfection. And I would say, theologically or biblically speaking, he's not just restoring us back to the perfection that like Adam and Eve had, but he's restoring us to a better perfection than what Adam and Eve had. Because Adam and Eve sinned, and what he restores us to, and we will one day experience in eternity, is the inability to sin. So, what he is reconciling is the sinful nature of chosen humans to become like his intended purpose for creation, which is perfection. So reconciliation does something that we cannot do on our own. It creates avenues for things we could not be without that reconciliation. And so I want to talk about these three things that I mentioned earlier, salvation, joy and unity and these are the three things three things that the bible specifically says reconciliation creates for us and they are not just bible truths they are not just theological and doctrinally important they are in, in incredibly practical and tangible realities about how we live our lives as christians so number one reconciliation creates salvation 
Romans chapter 5, verse 10 says, For if, while we were enemies, he's, just to be clear, he's talking about enemies to God. So that's, that's who we are without Christ. Like, I mean, if you think about the significance of that statement, would you, would you like, go up to your unbelieving, you know, sibling or your parents that aren't saved or, or a friend or a coworker and say, you're an enemy of God. Like, that's a really heavy statement to make to someone's face. And it sounds so abrupt, it sounds so uh, accusative, and it sounds so weighty because it's such a significant statement that we wouldn't, for the sake of those, that person's feelings, we wouldn't tell them that. Instead, if we recognize this person as an enemy to God, what we want to do is help them understand that, that there's a way for them not to be an enemy. And what we want to typically do is communicate that in a way where we're not calling them an enemy of God, or at least we can communicate that in a, a productive and helpful and healthy and even kind way so they can understand and hear the gospel. But this is the reality. They are enemies to God. They are not, this is very important, they are not your enemy. They're enemies to God because there's no peace with God without reconciliation. But they are not your enemy. Paul's very clear about that in Ephesians chapter 6. He says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, meaning people are not the problem. People are not the enemy. And he says, who do we wrestle against? The powers of principalities of darkness. He's talking about Satan. That's the enemy. He's the enemy. They are enemies to God because Jesus says in John chapter 8 that if you are not a believer, you are a child of Satan. Yikes! That is, Jesus said that. Like, the guy who created everything, the king of the universe, who knows all things, says if you, that, that you, if you don't have Christ, if you're not saved, if you don't have faith in Jesus, if God is not your God, then you are a child of the devil. That, those are the actual words he uses. A child, you are children of your father, the devil. Okay, that's, a lot, that's some pretty harsh truth coming from our Lord. And it makes sense because if the real enemy is Satan, then these people who are children of Satan are also enemies with God. But that, and we're children of God. So you've got God the Father and we are his children and you've got the devil who Jesus says, you are children of the devil. And the relationship, the, 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 the relationship between unbelievers and Satan and believers and God is very different. It's not like Satan created these people, but they're blinded, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, they're blinded by the enemy, they're blinded by Satan, so they fall into his lies, and that's what Jesus says. Your father's a liar, and so are you. So, even though these unbelievers are children of the devil, I, I don't even like saying it, and we are children of God, they are therefore enemies of God because their father is an enemy of God. But that doesn't translate across the bottom. They are not enemies, or I'm sorry, we are not, I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't write any of this down, so I'm just seeing, seeing what happens. Uh, they are not our enemies just because they're enemies of our God. And I'm going to show you why in a little bit. So we start as enemies of God. That's us. We might look at non-believers and say, oh, they're enemies of God. But keep in mind, so were you. And while you were enemies, totally depraved of any good, according to Ephesians 2.1, in that state of being an enemy, God still reconciled us to himself through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, at this point, we now have been transferred from enemy to friend or from opponent to child of God. And then Paul says these words in verse 10, Romans 5.10. He says, much more, indicating that there are additional benefits to this reconciliation. And that benefit is that if we are now reconciled to God, 
then the new status we enter is salvation. And that salvation comes to us by the perfect life of Jesus. So if Jesus is perfect, and if the perfect Jesus dies, that reality means nothing to us if it does not produce your individual reconciliation to God. Because that's the status of the enemies of God. Jesus is perfect, the perfect Jesus died, and he is willing to reconcile any who believe in him by faith. And that reality is truth, and that truth is reality. But the enemies of God, that truth means nothing to them if they don't believe. It has no application to them if they don't believe. There's no salvation, there's no reconciliation if they don't believe it. So basically what this means is without Jesus' perfect life and without his death, there's no reconciliation to God. And if there's no reconciliation, then there's no salvation. So now apply that to your life. Salvation is the most important reality in your life. Now you could say, actually, that's not true. God himself is the most important reality in my life. And that is true. But Psalm 68, 19 says, God is your salvation. So you don't get God without salvation. And you don't get salvation without God. He is your salvation. So salvation is the most important reality in your life because without it, you don't get the most important thing being that exists, God himself. So knowing that reconciliation produces for us salvation and salvation is the most important thing in our life, How much more important is it then that we reconcile with each other? I mean, think about that. God looks at his enemies, those who are children of the devil, who are totally depraved of any good, have 0% of anything to offer him, and he makes the enemies of him his children by reconciling them through Christ. How much more should we, who are not enemies with each other, reconcile with one another? Now, I'm going to get to that in a little bit too. I'm going to move on to number two. Number two, reconciliation creates joy. So we just read Romans 5.10, and now the next verse, Romans 5.11, says more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So verse 10 tells us that reconciliation is our salvation. So now that we're in a state of salvation, we can finally do what verse 11 now says we can do. So reconciliation produces that salvation, or they're, they're related to each other, so we need to be reconciled for that salvation, and then the product of that reconciliation is that we get to rejoice in God through Jesus. Without Jesus' life and death, there's no reconciliation or salvation, and therefore, there's no reason to rejoice in God. But once we're reconciled, something beautiful happens. God does something incredibly awesome and great. It is, a, one, of the, it is one of the best blessings that you experience in your life every day. It is real, practical, tangible, experiential, and it's something you actually have control over. It is your heart. Because once we are reconciled, we get new hearts and a new will. Ezekiel 36, 26 is an Old Testament text. God is uh, declaring his new covenant. So in the Old Testament, he's in an old covenant. And Many times in the Old Testament, while they are in the Old Covenant with God, God broadcasts a future new covenant that he's going to create in Christ Jesus. The Messiah will usher in the new covenant. That's the covenant that you and me are in right now in Christ. So back in Ezekiel 36, 26, God's talking about that future new covenant, and this is what it looks like. He says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Essentially, God is saying that this new heart will be, when he says heart of flesh, because we often think of the word flesh in a negative sense because that's how it's used. You know, don't, don't fall victim to the desires of the flesh. So flesh can have a negative connotation. In this case, it's a positive connotation because it's the opposite of a heart of stone, a resistant heart, a hardened heart that does not believe, accept, or, or love God. Whereas the heart of flesh is soft. It's a soft heart. It's an amiable heart that is built to receive truth and to receive love and then to reciprocate and give love and give truth to God and to others. So with that new heart and a new spirit and a new will, we gain a new desire. And that new desire is to rejoice in God for reconciling us to himself through Jesus. So with reconciliation, we gain a whole new perspective on life, a whole new perspective on the Bible and on the world we live in. We get a new worldview. We gain a better understanding of the way things work, of who God is, of who we are, why people are the way that they are. We can now understand that when people offend us, that they are not the problem, it is the enemy who is the deceiver. It is the enemy who is deceiving them and the enemy who is trying to deceive us, that, they, that people are not our enemies. Whether believer or unbeliever, they are not the problem. The enemy is the problem. We gain a whole new worldview on how we communicate, how we interact with people, what God is like, how he behaves, what he thinks, what he thinks about you, what we think about ourselves. We talked about this last week. We talked about our identity in Christ and how knowing who Jesus is and that we are in Jesus transforms the way we think about ourselves. We become more secure in who we are the, better, the more that we know that we are in him and in order to know who we are in him, we have to know him. And we get that opportunity, we get that worldview when we get that new heart. And you, can, you could probably explain your own experience in that from the day you got saved till today, how God has changed the way you think. I just think about the things that I knew when I, 15 years ago, right before I started ministry, right before, right before I started full-time ministry, and I was really good friends with my mentor who was training me and letting me preach, and he was teaching me all kinds of theology, and the questions he would ask me, he'd ask me these questions, I wouldn't know any of the answers. And today, I don't know that I necessarily know the answers, but I have an answer. I always say I could talk myself out of anything, probably, maybe. We'll see. I don't know. Either way, I feel like even if I don't know the answer, I could give you an answer. I probably would make a good politician is the reality. Um, because I feel like I could at least come up with something. Because God has changed the way that I think. He has poured his word into me and he has put me in a position where he's like, Mark, I want you to study the Bible full time every day of your life all the time until I tell you to stop which is going to be when you die. So, just, just my experience of learning the Bible by reading it has given me 15 years of growth that I can say God has softened and changed and, and, and adapted my heart to truth. And you could say the same thing. Think about your behavior 20 years ago. Are you more mature today than you were 20 years ago? You, you should say yes. <laughs> if you can't say yes to that, that's a problem, right? I mean, we're all maturing naturally too, but we're also maturing in the Lord. We, we understand life better. We understand the difference between life and death. We understand death itself differently. We have a new perspective on death. So when we lose a loved one, it isn't pure misery and despair. It is painful and sorrowful, but filled with the joy that we have Christ. And that God is fulfilling his will for his glory, which should bring us joy. So we gain a better understanding of our sufferings too, and better understanding of our hardships. And, and we can now find reason to have joy in pain, as well as joy in God in the seasons when there is no pain or suffering. Joy is that ultimate expression of gratitude to God for what he has done. Meaning, no matter how hard life is or how hard your circumstances or how difficult 
any aspect of your life is, whether it's a relationship problem with your spouse, a relationship problem with your friend, or a church member, or an employer, or a coworker, or whether it's a financial problem at home, or whether it's suffering for righteousness, or whether you lose a loved one, anything hard that you face in life, no matter what it is, joy not only remains throughout all of those hard things in life, but it actually grows. Why? Because none of those problems are nearly as big as going to hell. Because God has reconciled you through Christ, no matter how difficult or challenging things are in your life, at least you aren't going to hell. At least you have eternal life. At least you have Christ. And that truth, no matter what else is going, no matter what else you're going through, that truth gives us joy. And when that joy fills you up, and let's be honest, we look for joy most when things are the hardest. It's easy for us to run to sorrow and misery But we want joy most when things are the hardest. So we run to joy. And when we run to joy, and by by running to joy, I mean running to Christ, running to Jesus, running to God. When we go to him and we get that joy, that joy fills us up. And the result of that filling of joy is the expression of joy, which is praise. And since he is the one who reconciled us while we were enemies... He is the one who gets our praise. And the greater our joy in him, the greater our praise to him, and the greater our praise to him, the greater his glory in us. Number three, reconciliation creates unity. So I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 through 16 for you. But first, I want you to see in our text, Colossians 1.20, that Jesus makes peace between us and God in a specific way. Paul says in Colossians 1.20, by the blood of his cross. So he makes peace by the blood of his cross, meaning we get peace with God only by the death of Jesus. So if you ever hear anyone talking about, you know, there's, there's this, um, not, there's this, doctrine it's a false doctrine called the nonviolent atonement it's this idea that jesus didn't really have to die in order for us to be saved it's essentially kind of a form of universalism that everyone really should be saved or can be saved or whatever it's a false gospel it's not true if anyone ever mentions it to you just say colossians 120 he makes peace by the blood of his cross meaning without the blood of his cross which is death without his death there's what no peace with god So, that's important because Paul will make the same claim here in Ephesians chapter 2 that by the blood of Jesus or the death of Jesus, that is required for us to be at peace with God. And then in Ephesians 2, Paul will go on from that truth to reveal the practical and spiritual implications of that truth or how that truth becomes tangible and livable reality for us as believers. So, Ephesians 2, 13 through 16. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So you see that blood of Christ again. Being brought near means being saved or being given, a, given peace. See what he says? You who were once far off are now brought near. You who were enemies are now friends of God. How? By the blood of Christ, his death. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So the context here, this verse is referring to Jews and Gentiles and how the Gentiles 
are now included in getting salvation along with the Jews who were offered salvation first. So in other texts we find Paul saying, salvation was offered to the Jews first, they didn't want it, and now Paul's ministry is to bring the gospel to the Gentiles as well. So now we've got this reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. So now the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles is broken down in Jesus' flesh. Why? So that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. Meaning he is uniting the believing Jew and the believing Gentile into one new man. And this is done by, verse 16, reconciling us both, the Jew and the Gentile, to God in one body. That is an incredible degree of unity. And the implication of this truth is that believers are all one in Christ, Jew or Gentile, Gentile and Gentile, Jew and Jew. As long as they're believers in Christ, we all become one. The same body working together in the unity of the Spirit for God's glory and our joy in Him, just as a human body operates united and together to accomplish something physical. And this idea that the Jew and Gentile are reconciled together into one new man is significant because the relationship between the Jew and the Gentile in the first century was incredibly hostile. So if the Jew and Gentile can unite in Christ, how much easier should it be for you and you or you and me, Gentile and Gentile, to unite as one in Christ? So, what are we to do with these three truths that come from reconciliation? What is the application uh, of how reconciliation gives us salvation, joy, and unity? If, we're, if we are reconciled to God and that reconciliation gives us salvation, joy, and unity, how are we supposed to experience that salvation and and joy and unity? Or how are we to not only experience it, but act out salvation, joy, and unity? The answer is that since we are reconciled to God, we now are called into the ministry of reconciliation. Meaning, we now serve as ambassadors of reconciliation to God and must ourselves reconcile with one another. So those two concepts I want you to see there. That we are now, now that we're reconciled to God, what I'll show you in one of these texts is that that reconciliation we have with God now becomes for us a ministry of reconciliation between each other and a ministry of reconciliation to the world. And we see this first one, this reconciliation we have with each other, expressed in Matthew 5, 24. Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Okay. I'm going to tell you what happened to me this week. Uh, I have a good friend and... He and I did not agree on something this week. And it was mostly a miscommunication. And that disagreement got to a point where there was a, I don't know what you call it, a tiff <laughs> between us, right? A little um, friction, tension, thank you. Uh, a little tension between us. And I started thinking about it, and I kind of thought to myself, you know what? It would be good for him to learn to approach me. He should come to me and make things right. That's the maturing he needs to do. <laughs> and I was like, I'm just going to work on my sermon. And then I start working on my sermon, and I read Matthew 5, 24, and I'm like, oh, I'm wrong. <laughs> How dare 
I even approach Sunday morning or walk into this sanctuary or start worshiping God or singing any music or even writing my sermon because I'm going to put this sermon at the altar of God and say, you preach this, Jesus. How dare I do any of that if I don't obey Jesus and knowing that my brother has something against me, I have to first go be reconciled with my brother. And I did. And it worked. And we're cool. And I think we're going to be even better. Good. So, if you think, and any of you are thinking, wow, he's such a good man. No, no, because remember what I said. (laughs) I said, he has to do the maturing, and God was like, Mark, no, you do. So, that's all praise to God, and this ministry, this this is a ministry that we are called to. It, It is only because we have first been reconciled to God that we are able to seek reconciliation with our fellow believers. And this verse is very clear that Jesus is saying, you cannot have tension in your relationships. And some of you, hmm, a lot of you do. You do. I know you do because you tell me about it. And, and I even hear you, and guys, I do this too, so I'm not like coming down on you. I do this to you. Talk about your tension that you have with somebody else in a way that doesn't make it sound like there's tension between you. Like, hey, this person did this or that, and they're thinking this or that. Now, I kind of think that they're wrong, and then you just kind of like try to frame it in this kind of like, uh, you know, I'm not saying anything bad about them, but here's something bad about them. You know, like we, we just like to do that. It's our sinful nature. We run to that kind of solution. And what I see there is the need for the gospel to mend the tension, to mend the brokenness in the relationship. And that is your calling, to to reconcile with your brothers and sisters in Christ. If there is someone in this church that you don't get along with, that's not okay. That's not okay. We we don't get to just say, hey, I don't like the way this person does things. I'm just going to do my ministry. They can do theirs, and I'm just going to keep my distance. That's not unity. It's not love, and it's not the gospel, and it's definitely not reconciliation. If there is tension between us and another believer, we have to reconcile. That other person might not even know that you're uncomfortable with them or that you have a problem with them. They might not even know. And you're beating yourself up and it's eating you alive and you're getting frustrated with this person and they're just living their life clueless to the fact that they're doing anything that upsets you at all. And you're just like, oh, they just did it again. And they're just like living their life. Maybe they just need to be told, hey, just so you know, when you do this, this is how it makes me feel. And they go, I had no idea. I'm so sorry. I will not do that anymore. Oh, and you hug it out. Reconciliation. Right? It's that simple. We're just so afraid to talk to people about hard things. Now, I have a lot of experience having tough conversations when I was a pastor in Illinois, my senior pastor and, men, and my mentor, was tell, he, told me, he told me, you've got to have these tough conversations. You've got to have those. When people are sinning, you've got to tell them about it. You've got to shepherd them through that. You have to have that tough but loving and gracious and understanding and patient conversation with them where you can help them see their sin and help them grow in Christ and love them and comfort them and shepherd them through it. But that doesn't make it easy just because you make it soft. It's hard to have those tough conversations with people. It's hard to confront. Confrontation scares like 98% of the population. Most people don't like it. And you know the ones who do like it because they love to confront people and we avoid them because we don't like confrontation. <laughs> right? And so what I'm telling you is that, well, with my experience, when I got to Montana and I was a pastor there, the senior pastor, Jerry, he was in his 70s. He started that church like 50 years ago, and he was still the pastor there. And this guy has 50 years of experience having tough confrontations and conversations with people. And he says to me when I got there, Mark, I don't want to do it anymore. <laughs> You're going to have those conversations like, what, what, why do I have to do it? I'm just a youth pastor, man. <laughs> I don't want to talk to people about these things. I don't want to have those tough conversations. And he made me do it. 
And I am so grateful for it. And I remember thinking to myself, if I just keep doing this the way it's supposed to be done, if I keep doing this in a biblical, loving, shepherding way, it will get easier for me to do. Today, it's not an ounce easier. <laughs> not even a little bit. It is just as hard. And if I do it a million more times, I think it'll be just as hard then. If anything, it's even harder. Because the more time I spend with you, the more I love you. And the more I love you, the harder it is to confront you with your sin. Because I don't want you to run away. But we are called to do that. All of us, not just pastors, everybody. To reconcile with people we have problems with. It is not okay to have a problem with someone in your church. It is not okay to have a problem with another believer. We have to reconcile. And if they don't know there's a problem and you do have a problem with them and you let that fester, that will turn into a cancer of unforgiveness and bitterness. And what Paul says in Ephesians is uh, unforgiveness leads to anger and anger to bitterness and bitterness to malice and malice to murder. So we don't want to go that way. We have to reconcile. Because if you don't, and whether they know you have a problem or not, or whether you know there's a problem or not, the point is somebody has to break the ice. Someone has to fix the problem. Because if we don't, it's going to lead us down a very slippery slope of subconscious and unconscious mental health issues, for real, and spiritual health decay. If you've got a problem with somebody or someone has a problem with you or there's tension or some sort of problem with, with you and another believer and you have any other experiences in your life that aren't going well, any kind of other spiritual, uh, spiritual problems going on in your heart or mind or struggling with sins or whatever, they're related. Those are 100% related. You will be struggling spiritually if we don't resolve issues with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Because not to resolve that problem is to tell Jesus he is worthless. That's what that means. Would you stand in front of Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't care what you think. I don't care how you feel. You mean nothing to me. Of course you wouldn't. But that's essentially what we do when we refuse to reconcile with someone that we have a problem with. Because they are just as much in Christ as you are, they are the body too. That's like the, the brain saying to the heart, I don't need you. And the heart goes, good luck, and stops working. Right? It's not going to work. We, we need each other. The body needs itself. And you are in the body, and they are in the body, and you are limping around because you don't care about the broken leg. Because it's their problem, not mine. It's yours. It's always yours. The onus to reconcile any problem is 100% always on you. So if you and you both have a problem, I'm not going to say it's on this one particular person or that one particular person. I'd say to both of them, it's 100% on you. Both. Because when we take away any percentage of that, that's our responsibility, we put it on them and we alleviate ourselves from the problem. And then what we do is we build up unforgiveness and frustrations and tension with them and it grows and grows and grows until it becomes spiritual decay in our heart and in our mind and in our soul and it ruins churches. How in the universe could a church divide over the color of paint they put on the walls or the type of carpet they lay on the floor. How in the world? I'll tell you how. It has nothing to do with carpet. It has nothing to do with walls. It has everything to do with unresolved tension and problems that were never reconciled in the first place that grow so deep and heavy and painful that when something is trivial as a color carpet becomes an issue, people divide. 
because there's no unity without reconciliation. So that's the first thing we need to reconcile with each other. And not only are we to reconcile with believers, but we are to reconcile the world to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself, and listen to this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. If reconciliation with believers produces unity and joy, then our ministry of reconciliation with unbelievers is meant to produce their salvation. This is how we express the reconciliation that we have received. By doing the ministry of reconciliation and sharing the gospel with the world so that they too would be reconciled to God and join us in the joy of Jesus and be united with us in Christ for God's glory. Sad reality is that there's far too many of us who are way too comfortable being at ends and at odds with other believers and it is the most vile picture of a beautiful gospel of reconciliation and that is why it is so important that we reconcile with each other. What I've already explained to you is the importance of the, of the health of the church and your individual spiritual growth and your own individual spiritual health. How important reconciliation is to you and your relationships within the church with other believers. And if we're not reconciling, we're getting unhealthy. Okay, we know that. In addition to that, if we are not reconciling with each other inside the church, it not only hurts us, it makes people go to hell. Because the world looks at the church and they see believers fighting with each other in tension, not resolving issues, not confronting problems, but instead talking garbage and trash about each other and having problems and fighting and dividing and churches splitting in half. And the world sees it and they go, I don't need Jesus to do that. Our reconciliation with each other is not just a means for ourselves, but it's a means for the world to know him so that when we go to the world, when we go to lost people, when we talk to unbelievers and we tell them about Jesus and we share the gospel with them, we can show them the reconciliation that God will give them through Christ and then we show it to them in our own life. So the solution for the lost world is that we must seek reconciliation in all of our relationships. Not just for our joy, not just for your joy, not just for the salvation of the lost, and not just for the unity of the body, but for the sake of God's glory in the gospel, for the exaltation of the gospel, for the sake of Jesus. Your reconciliation is meant to create in you daily expressions of God's reconciliation as a means to draw in others to believe the gospel. That's why Jesus says, do good works and, the other, and others will see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. He's not saying be legalistic and just, you know, manufacture good works that aren't real. He's talking about real change from a real heart that is really reconciled. Do the right things, not because you should do the right things, but because you love Jesus, you're in the word, you believe the gospel, you trust the Lord, and you are faithful to him because he is growing in you because you are dedicated and devoted to him and you desire him and you pursue him and as you pursue him, he will fill you up, that's a promise, and when he does fill you up, his spirit will do the good works through you. When that happens, reconciliation becomes beautiful and the world sees the beauty of your reconciliation and sees the root of it as Christ and they will come to Jesus. That is how we get people saved. So when people come to me and say, we need to have a ministry that goes out into the world and shares the gospel, my first thought is, why? Why? We're, we aren't ready for that. Do I think you shouldn't share the gospel with the lost? Of course you shouldn't. When you have opportunities, please do so. But I can't, in good conscience, create in our church a program for sharing the gospel with the community when I don't think there, that we as a church are internally 
healthy enough because there are tiffs and tensions in the church, which means we've got reconciliation issues in the church that need to be dealt with and addressed and confronted. And it will be beautiful. I promise it will be glorious. And if you don't know what to do, come talk to me and I'll help you through it. I've done it a million times. I'll have the hard conversation for you, but with you. With you. And with the person that you're in tension with. And we will work it out and we will grow spiritually. And then we won't have to create a program because Jesus will pour out of you into the community and people will get saved. Someone asked me the other day, how many people go to your church? And I told them, uh, this many people. And then they said, oh, has it grown? And I'm like, yeah, with Christians. Like, you know, people who already were saved and were already going to another church. And I said, but that's not growth to me. And I, you know, if you've been here long enough, you've heard me say this many times. Growth is when unbelievers get saved. Those are the people I want to see in this church. I want to see unbelievers, people that were unbelievers last week, are now sitting in these chairs as believers, and they're like, I'm hungry for Jesus. Teach me. They'll never sit in these chairs. They'll never sit in these chairs if there is not reconciliation in this room. So, who do you need to reconcile with? Let's pray. Lord, we trust you. We love you. You're going to do work. We, we don't know how, but we know why. It's for your glory. It's for our joy. Do your work. Reconcile relationships in this church, whether it's with each other in this church or someone in this church having a problem with someone outside of the church. Help us. Help us grow and mature spiritually like you and into your nature by going to others and, and restoring relationships back to what they're supposed to be. That's a work you can do. And we are afraid of it. So conquer fear with Christ and help us to reconcile just as you've done with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.